As Marty said, my name is Michael Mock. This is my wife, Elizabeth, and my two children, Timothy, seven, and Alethea, three. Well, seven and a half and three and a half, of course. <laughs> Got to count that half. And we're from Phoenix. We uh, are members of a church fellowship of grace. Maybe you know of Pastor Bill Phillips. That's where we attend. And uh, I did my internship there for 17 months and am now seeking a call. So we're from Phoenix, and it only took us two hours to get here. So uh, a nice hop, skip, and a jump. But uh, we, heard gorge- we heard Tucson was gorgeous this time of year, so we had to come. And uh, we're glad to be here, though, in all honesty. It's, it's good to be here. It's good to go and visit other churches, to uh, be with the body of Christ, see what, uh, see what you guys are doing, see what the Lord is doing here. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for your word. We know that it is truth. Your son has said as much. And we thank you that it is by your word that we are sanctified. We pray that you will be with us now, that you will work in our hearts, that we will hear, that we will have the ears to hear and the eyes to see what your word has for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Don't get lost in the musical talent that I just displayed. (laughs) I don't want you to miss this point. That song, that hymn, and we're going to sing after this message, is the big idea for today's sermon. Trust and Obey. That's what our text says, and we're going to read that. It is John 3, 22-36. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth, and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives his spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son 
shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is a great text of Scripture. And it is placed between two stories. In the beginning of John chapter 3, you see Jesus with Nicodemus talking about the uh, rebirth, being born from above. And then after this story, we have Jesus and his encounter with the woman from Samaria, the woman at the well. And although our focus will be on verse 36, I want us to look at each of these sections to get the overall context so we may rightly understand verse 36. So in John 3, 22 through 30, here we have John the Gospel writer revisiting John the Baptist. You might know that John the Baptist was first introduced in John chapter 1. There it was that John the Baptist testified to Jesus as being the Christ. He was the prophet, and he testified to the people. He saw the Spirit descend upon Christ, and he says, This is the Son of God. This is the prophet, the one that we've been waiting for. In our section here, John the Baptist, or John the author, he points out ways in which Jesus is far superior to John the Baptist. And for those reasons, John the Baptist must decrease, and Christ must increase. In verse 24, or verse 26 rather, we read, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Here we have John the Baptist's disciples grumbling and complaining. They're upset. Why is Jesus and his disciples baptizing everybody? We should be here. I mean, we were here first. Come on. And they get all ruffled up a bit. John the Baptist, he says, come on, guys. Yeah, we were here first, but we are here to proclaim the way of the Lord. That's why I was here. I told you in John chapter 1, I told you that I am not the Christ. I am not the bridegroom. Rather, I am the friend of the bridegroom. And for that reason, John, or Jesus, has every reason to be baptizing more than I. Saying, look, disciples, don't get your feathers all ruffled up. Okay, It's not my show. This is why I was called. I was called to proclaim the way of the Lord. I am just the best man, so to speak, or the friend of the bridegroom. I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be um, taking more of the uh, fanfare, I guess, or popularity. It's, my, it's, my, it's now my time to fade back, to play the background a bit. This is Jesus' wedding. This is his main event. He is the star. And I am rejoicing immensely. And so should you. That our uh, bridegroom has finally arrived. This is what we've been waiting for all these years, you guys. Get on board with me. And as some of us may know, this is the last we hear of John the Baptist until he's put in prison and then beheaded. And then as we move on to our next section in John 31 through 36... John, the author of the Gospel of John. I know it's difficult sometimes to got to keep qualifying. John the Baptist, John the Gospel writer. But John the Gospel writer, he is saying, he's now explaining or commenting on John the Baptist's teaching. Some Bibles have um, this whole section, 
John the Baptist quote, but uh, I, I'm of the opinion that the ESV translators have is that at the end of verse 30, that's John the Baptist's, he's done, he's done um, teaching, and then 31 and following is John the Gospel writer's commentary. He's explaining this teaching. And John explains one of the reasons why Jesus is better than John the Baptist. He's saying that John the Baptist is limited. He is earthly. He is from below, from the earth, whereas Jesus Christ is from above. John the Baptist certainly called people to come and repent and be baptized with water. But he was limited. He could not speak of heaven's counsels. He could not testify about what occurred in heaven, for he is not from above. He is from the earth. And he was not in any position, as Jesus was, to give eternal life. No, he's, he's limited. Christ, however, he is above all. He is heavenly. He has come from above. And for those reasons, he can speak about the Father's plan for the people on the earth. Sadly, however, John, the Gospel writer in verse 32, says what Jesus said just earlier in 3.11, that no one receives his testimony. That on the whole, they reject him. They rather have darkness than light. They'd rather their sins not be exposed. It didn't matter that Jesus came from above. It didn't matter that he came from the Father the creator of the universe. The unbelievers prefer to stay in darkness. But, John says that there are, however, some exceptions. He says this in verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Of course, there are some exceptions to this. Um, to the idea that no one receives Jesus' testimony. Jesus didn't come to the earth for naught. He came for a reason. He came to set people free. And they received his testimony. And whoever, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this. That God is true. He is saying... I certify, I put my stamp of approval on this belief that God is not a liar, that God did not act wickedly when he sent the Son to the earth to redeem a lost people. This is the Father's plan. Yes, we recognize that Jesus is the Christ. This is more than just a mere intellectual understanding. And those of us who were raised in the the church have this tendency to take it for granted. Yeah, I get it. Jesus was sent by the Father, and he died for my sins. Amen. And, and we kind of just take it for granted and just, yeah. But I've been taught that since I was like one. This is more than that. It's more than just a, an agreement that this is the case. It's, it's staking your life on this. It's investing your soul into this belief. You are trusting, and through that trust, you are obeying. Jesus is the Christ. This isn't just some Bible story. This is the Bible story. And this is the truth. Jesus always said and always did what the Father wanted him to say and do. So to believe Jesus, 
is to believe the Father. And to believe the Father is to believe Jesus. Jesus himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Too many people, we saw this in, uh, in Jesus' day, especially with his interaction with the Jews, too many people said, we believe the Father, but we reject the Son. Jesus says, you can't have it both ways. It is, if you accept the Father, you accept me. Because I do and say exactly what the Father wants me to say and do. I am the plan. I am part, or I am the crux of the plan of redemption. John, in his gospel, he moves on in verse 34, he says this, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. In Jewish thought, rabbis would think that, um, they used to believe that the Spirit of God that rested on the prophets of old, only did so for a limited period of time and only for a specific task that the prophet was assigned. And this was the case as well with John the Baptist. However, with Jesus, we see God went all out. He pulled out all the stops on this one. And he, in order to equip Jesus for his earthly ministry, gave him the spirit without measure. All the spirit was rested on the Son. And Jesus, submitting to the Father, depended entirely on the Spirit for guidance and for strength. And this is one way that we see the Father's immense love for the Son. This is, what John, this is John's point in verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. We see... This is how God loved His Son so much that He gave the Son authority over all flesh. He gave the Spirit, without measure, into the Son's hand, that He may judge rightly, that He may call people to repentance and to belief, that He may save a people unto Himself. All of this explanation in 22-35 culminates in John's final verse in the Gospel, this chapter. And this is really where we want to um, camp out the rest of our time. John gives us two options. You can either genuinely believe, or you can be obstinately disobedient. And John's purpose in this verse is evangelistic. And it's in keeping with his, own, his entire purpose of the gospel, which he says in John twenty thirty one that we might believe in the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life, in his name. So you have two options, genuine belief or disobedience. Verse 36, we're going to pick this verse apart. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Who is this whoever? Well, it's everyone. Everyone who believes. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, like Nicodemus, you're a high-ranking Jew, Pharisee, John 3. It doesn't matter if you're the woman from Samaria, in John 4. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, an official, like the end of John 4. Or it doesn't matter if you're a low-ranking Jew in John 5 when he heals the paralytic. It doesn't matter. Any ethnicity, any nationality, any type of person, this applies to any person. Jesus is not being exclusivistic here. He's saying whoever, everyone. We We must not miss that. Everyone who 
believes. Here, John is getting more specific. This applies to those who believe. Is this just a one-time belief? Okay, I believe and that's it. I don't have to, I don't have to demonstrate that belief through any type of obedience or um, I don't have to go to church. I don't have to be with uh, the people of God. I don't, I don't have to read God's word, any of that stuff. No, this is an ongoing, abiding trust and belief. This is a belief that perseveres. A good translation would be everyone who is believing. It's an ongoing reality. You believed in the past, of course, but you continue to believe, and you will always believe. If you have been set free by the Son, if you believed, because He's the one, He's the only one to give you the gift of faith. If you believe, you will be believing, and you will continue to believe. You cannot not believe, because the Son is not going to lose any that the Father has given Him. We can contrast this type of belief with uh, a type of belief that was mentioned in John 2, 23 and 24. This is after uh, the um, wedding at Cana in Galilee, when Jesus turned the water into wine. Verse 23 says this, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And this is in a different tense from what he says in verse 24 and what we have in our text. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself, or literally, was not believing himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Did they truly believe? I mean, it says they believed, right? Well, in John's Gospel, if you study it carefully, there are many instances where people are said to believe, but later on they they don't really believe. You you see that they just believe because they saw some sign. Jesus turned water into wine. And they they liked it. Oh, this guy's doing something special. We've got to follow him. But they actually didn't really follow him. They followed him because they wanted to continue seeing great signs and wonders. If they had genuinely believed, Jesus would not have cast them out. His arms are open wide. And he says, all who come to me, I'm not going to cast out. Everyone who is believing, believing what? In the Son. You have to have an object of your belief of this faith. You can't just be believing in nothing. And you can't just believe in anyone. You can't believe in John the Baptist for your eternal life. You can't believe in Muhammad or in Joseph Smith or the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society or L. Ron Hubbard or any other person. There is only one person that you can believe in if you want to have eternal life. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the way and the truth and the life. This is the one who has come from above, who is far superior to John the Baptist, who is earthly. This is the one who was the Word of God, become flesh. He it is who will heal the paralytic in John 5. This is the one who is going to feed the 5,000 in John 6. And in John 9, he's going to heal the man who was born blind. And in John 11, he's going to... Raise Lazarus, showing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. 
This is the one who, who always does what the will of the Father is for him. Who, who intercedes on our behalf in the high priestly prayer in John 17. This is the one who, who died for us. Who endured the infinite wrath of Almighty God. And who died. But was raised. This is the one who on the third day was raised from the dead. Conquering sin. Conquering the devil. Conquering death. This is the one who, who sent his spirit to us. That we might not be left alone. This is the one who has given us the Comforter to be with us always as Jesus is reigning in heaven at the right hand of the Father. This is Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, the life. And everyone who is believing in the Son has eternal life. Notice the present tense of that verb. It's has. It's not will have. Certainly that is the case. Everyone who is believing in the Son will have eternal life. But that's not John's focus here. It's has. It's present tense. It's a present tense reality of an eternal reality. You already have it if you believe. This is a different type of life. And, of course, it's going to last forever and ever. But this is a life that's not enslaved to sin anymore. You don't have to do your former father's desires. You're no longer enslaved to the devil. Rather, you are enslaved to to Christ. And you are free. The Lord has set you free. And you are in God's presence. And the Holy Spirit is in you. And you are communing with the Lord. With the Father and with the Spirit. This is the absolute blessing of the presence of God. This is eternal life. And we have an already not yet reality of this. We see taste of it in this earthy life, and it's going to be far superior, full, without sin, without disease, without suffering, without sickness, without the devil, without death. It's going to be awesome. And that's incredible news. John, however, doesn't end there. He gives us a sober warning the second part of verse 36. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. What's interesting here is that John doesn't say whoever does not believe the Son. That's true. But he uses a different word. He says obey. Some translations mess it up and they say does not believe. Uh, but John could have easily said does not believe. He could have just used believe and then put Not. Of course, the Greek equivalent. But could have done that. He didn't do that. He says, does not obey. This word categorically means obey. There's obedience involved here. And the person who does not obey shall not see life. Does this verse give us pause? I mean, we're, we're Protestants. We're from the Reformed perspective here. We would think this verse would read, whoever does not believe the Son shall not see life. Right? But it doesn't say that. If believing in the Son of God is the only way to have this eternal life, and if Jesus commands us to believe, then to not believe is to disobey. But should this verse scare us, are the Roman Catholics right after all? 
Can we be saved by faith and works? Faith, yes, but works also. If disobedience keeps us out, does obedience get us in? Well, yes and no. It's not our obedience that gets us in. It's Christ's obedience. But our faith is not devoid of obedience. We don't have just a a workless faith. You don't see that in Scripture at all. In fact, you see the exact opposite. In John 5, for instance, John 5, 28, 29, Jesus talking about the resurrection here. He says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Didn't say those who have believed to the resurrection of life and those who don't believe to the resurrection of judgment. Certainly, that is the case. But they don't, the New Testament writers don't see this dichotomy between faith and obedience such that you can have faith without obedience. If you have faith, you have obedience. John 15, when Jesus says he is the vine, we are the branches, what is that, um, what is that metaphor uh, all about? It's us bearing fruit. And if we don't bear fruit, what's going to happen? We're going to be taken away. Those, in verse 8, those who bear fruit prove to be Jesus' disciples. We read, um, Elder Dick read James 2, faith without works is dead. In James chapter 1, James tells us to, to receive the implanted word of God, to believe the gospel, but he didn't end it there. In, John 1, or in James 1, he said, Bridle the tongue. Visit the orphans and the widows. He says, Keep yourselves unstained from the world. These are all actions. He wants us not to be just hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. And of course, Paul would agree, in Ephesians 2, by grace we're saved, right? Through faith. And he says, It's not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done, we're not going to boast here. Our works don't get us into heaven. But verse 10 says, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And these works have been prepared beforehand for us so that we may walk in them. So the New Testament is in agreement. Faith without works is dead. Faith demonstrates itself through obedience. And you see many examples of this in the New Testament. You see in John 9, uh, when Jesus healed the man who was born blind, he, he put the mud on his, uh, his eyes and, he, and the guy believed. But how did the guy show his belief? Jesus said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he did. I think of Peter as well. He trusted and obeyed for a bit when he was on the boat and told to walk on water. He trusted Jesus. And then he obeyed. He walked on water. Of course, he obeyed for a little bit and he had a little bit of faith. He did trust and he did obey. And no doubt, his trust and obedience strengthened and grew as he grew in the Lord. We can think of many examples in our lives. Children, you demonstrate to your parents and to God that you trust them, that the Lord has put them over you as you obey them. 
couples, you have been married for a certain number of years and you demonstrate to the Lord that you trust Him at His word, you demonstrate that through obedience, by keeping your vows, by being faithful to each other. Young ladies, this might be difficult. Uh, Those who are looking for a boyfriend or a future husband, you trust your father as your head when he considers men for you to be your future husband. That might be difficult for some of you. But you demonstrate to your Lord that you trust him, and that you trust your father by being obedient to what he says. We trust the Lord when we look at his word and we try to apply it to our lives through the Holy Spirit's guidance and help and grace. As we seek to put off sin and kill sin, we trust him at his word because we know that his word is breathed out and is profitable for teaching, for, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Trust leads to obedience. Obedience is the effect of genuine faith. It isn't the cause of it. We don't, be, we don't obey in order to become children of God. Hear me on that. Okay? I don't want you to think I'm teaching works righteousness here at all. You obey because you are a child of God. You conform to the image of the Son because you are conforming to the image of the Son. Because you are being sanctified. And because you've been saved of the Almighty God. John says that the one who doesn't obey the Son shall not see life. He's not going to see the life that is promised to those who believe. He will not have life in the kingdom of God. In fact, he will continue to be enslaved. And he will be judged. And John tells us the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God, this is not some impersonal retribution principle. It's a tit-for-tat kind of a thing. You, um, what goes around comes around. It's, it's not that at all. This is the holy response of a personal, incredible, just, wise, majestic God who absolutely despises sin, who abhors wickedness, who is disgusted by disbelief and disobedience. And John says, the wrath of God remains on this person. This is a present tense reality, just like those who have life in his name are experiencing a present tense reality. John tells us in 3.18 that um, the people who do not believe are condemned already. They already stand under the looming wrath of God, condemned. It remains on the person who does not believe. And it will be carried out in full at the judgment of God, at the final resurrection, the final judgment. This is bad news. This is horrible news for those who do not obey, those who are unbelievers. But the great news is there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who believe in the Son 
have eternal life. They are no longer enslaved to sin. Christ has taken that condemnation that rested upon them before they believed, and He's taken that away, and He bore it Himself on the cross. And you are just, and you are perfect, because your justness, justice and your perfection is Christ's. It has been imputed to you. It has been given to your account. Nothing you did could have ever earned that. But Christ, in His infinite love, and the Father, in His infinite love, and the Holy Spirit, in His infinite love, decided to save a people unto Himself. This is incredible news. And believing the gospel frees us up now to obey. You couldn't do one good thing before before you believed. Now you can be in a state of pleasing the Lord because you're in the Son and He loves you perfectly. But we don't obey so that we can earn more of God's love or to earn His favor or to merit. You have it all. You have the unconditional perfection of kind of love that God gives us who are in Jesus. So we obey out of gratitude because we love our Lord, because we're thankful for what He has done for us. May we take seriously this call to trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Amen.